0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We've done over a thousand programs since the pandemic began, and I wanted to let everybody know that we're kind of back to normal now. We have our live audiences, and I thought I'd take this time to you know, put in a, a little plug for live theater. Live theater is different than, than watching a movie. Um, every art form has its uh, function, which is what we're going to talk about here, the print art form versus the Internet art form. And, uh, but, but you know, in person, especially when a, an idea is being discussed that's nuanced, sophisticated, and we, 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 it's an issue so big that it's going to affect our futures, we have to have some kind of rational discussion so that we have an idea of how to come to a consensus now, as is clear from professor jarvis's book we never come to a consensus about anything <laughs> but but we have to at least have some idea of maybe getting there so anybody that uh, is in the san francisco area we won't require all of those of you who watch us uh, around the world to come right to our, our uh, lecture halls in san francisco but those of you who are here come on back and see what it's like in person it's always fun to meet these uh, authors that you've heard about quite often over the years Here they are in person. It's a really good opportunity. You don't get too many like that. So um, if you you would like to have your copy of your book signed, uh, Professor Jarvis will be signing it afterwards. And if you have any questions for for Professor Jarvis, um, we will take cards here uh, in the audience, and I will ask him. And in addition to that, if you're watching this on live stream, you can put it into the YouTube chat, and it will be sent to me by my phone. So if you see me looking at my phone, it's not because he didn't say something interesting. <laughs> I'm trying to get the next questions. Um, so Professor Jarvis is, um, teaches at the City University of New York in the Graduate School of Journalism. And he also is the author of this book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, um, The Print Era and How and the Lessons for the Internet. Not the precise title, but close. Um, so we're going to discuss, you know, the, the, the combination of, of these two technologies. We of course, are living with both right now. But uh, he has a very interesting thesis about how they relate to each other and what we can learn from what happened at the beginning of the print era, because it was a disruptive technology, just like the Internet. So welcome very much uh,
2: to the Commonwealth Club. Professor Jarvis. Thank you, George.. So I thought I would just start for a few minutes and talk about what the heck is the Gutenberg Parenthesis. And the conceit of the book is that we have much to learn from uh, the entry into the age of print as we now leave it for whatever follows. And I'm not saying the print dies. I'm not saying the books die. But I am saying that we are entering, I think, a new age, and we're trying to figure that out. And I believe there were lessons to be learned early on. The concept of the Gutenberg Parenthesis comes from three academics at the University of Southern Denmark. Uh, to give them credit, Tom Pettit, Lars Ole Sauerberg, and Marianne Borch. Tom is an is a Englishman in Denmark, and he came to MIT some years ago and gave a talk that fascinated me, because he's a medievalist. And he argues that the, the age of print, the Gutenberg parenthesis, was an exception in history, and that we are returning in some ways to what came before print, and we can recapture what we learned there. So to explain the the difference of the three, before print, knowledge was passed around mouth to mouth, it was changed along the way, there was very little sense of ownership or authorship, Uh, the business model for, for, for text was one scribe, one patron, and a lot of time. And the aim of the scribe was to preserve the knowledge of the ancients. Then along comes Gutenberg, and important to say that Gutenberg did not first invent movable type, it started in China and Korea, and we don't know whether there was any continuum there. But Gutenberg, in about 1454, had the Bible come off the press. And as we know, huge changes then occurred. And Marshall McLuhan would say that once knowledge was contained at a beginning and an end, at alpha and omega, and in this product that we came to think of as a book or a publication, that we had an expectation of linearity. And that the line, this sentence is an example, said McLuhan, became our organizing principle. And finally along came a business model for for text and print with copyright. And um, we no longer tried to preserve the knowledge of the ancients, but instead we we honored Frau, doctor, professor, so-and-so who wrote a book as an expert. Um, And print affected how we cognize the world. What the theory then says is that afterwards, where we are now, and it's not a quick end, it could be an end that goes on for decades, generations, even centuries. But in this transition coming to the other side, we're returning to a more conversational society. And we're trying to relearn how to hold a conversation with ourselves, I would say, online. And there is not a clear business model anymore for print the way that there was in print, rather. Um, That's why we fight around copyright. And we no longer honor the ancients. And I'm afraid we no longer honor the experts as much as we should. Uh, My friend David Weinberger, a philosopher, would say that uh, the smartest person in the room is the room itself is the network that brings us together. And, and so I sat with Pettit one day and I said, wow, what a coincidence this is that we, we come back to a conversational society. And he basically said with being nicer than this, no, you doofus, it's not a coincidence. It's what I, the whole point is. We are returning to a more natural state of a conversational society. And I, and I quite like that mm-hmm. George. And, and, and I think that that led me to look at what were some of the changes that we saw in society and we see now in the society. Um, and real quickly, I, I want to mention the timeline for what we learned, I think, through the age of print. 1454, Bible Belt comes off the press. It took 50 years before the book as we know it to take on the form that we now know, with characteristics like page numbers and indexes and title pages and titles. Um, that first 50 years is known as the incunabular phase, the infant phase of print. 150 years after print, after Gutenberg, uh, we see a rush of innovation with print. And by then, the technology and the technologists, important to talk about that in San Francisco, kind of fade into the background. And now what we see is the invention of the novel with Cervantes, the invention of the essay with Montaigne, Mm -hmm. the invention of a newspaper in Strasbourg, the creation of a market for printed plays with Shakespeare. This huge wave of innovation came along. 1605, the newspaper. Another century on, 1710, copyright with the Statute of Anne. Another century on, 1800, we start to see the first changes in the technology of print. It changed, not at all, basically, from 1454 up to 1800. But then we got steam-powered presses, and the linotype, and pulp paper, and other things that made for mass media. So the mechanization and industrialization of print changed the scale of society markedly. Before that, the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the U.S. was 4,000. It was a good substack newsletter. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, it became thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. And we see the creation of the mass. Fast forward 1920, print gets its first major competitor, radio. 1950s, TV. Now here we are. What did I leave out? Obviously the Internet. And we are, to my mind, about a quarter century past the commercial browser, which I think is the popular rendition of the Internet. That's to say that we're about the year 1480 in Gutenberg years. We have time. This, this change we think is so rapid, I think might actually be slow. It might be that, that we have much change yet ahead of us, and, and we still need to adjust. And in that process, I think we have to learn how to have conversations with each other again. I think that we have to rethink our institutions Um, that we have around us. I'll mention more about that in just one second. I think we have to re-examine this idea of the mass that mass media and industrialization brought us. I think the mass is fundamentally an insult to the public. It's a way to not hear and not listen to and not recognize the individuality of people. Um, And I think that we also see today with AI the commodification of this thing we consider content. We think content is that which fills books and fills publications and newspapers and magazines. But content, I think, is the wrong description for what we do. We are in a conversation. This is mm. humanities. That's what we're in right here now. I think that's a far more important way to look at society. Now, it's not working terribly well in a lot of ways. I acknowledge that. The inter- we haven't figured out the Internet yet. Um, there's jerks, and there's misinformation, and there's people who are wrong, and there's all kinds of things going on online. But I think we will figure it out as we did. I'll end my spiel here. Mm. In 1470, there came what was said to be the first call for censorship of this new medium of print. Uh, only a few years after 1454 in the Bible, Nicola Perotti, who was a translator in Italy, was much offended by a shoddy translation and publication of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope and he said, Your Holiness, you must appoint a censor to approve every form before it's put off on the press. It has to be somebody who's erudite and a scholar and, and you have to do this because something must be done. Sounds familiar. Well, as I thought about it, I realized that Perotti was not asking for censorship. What he was asking for and was anticipating was the creation of the institutions of editing and publishing. Those institutions that came along that assured quality and authority and credibility in print. Not all the time, but most of the time. And those institutions served us very well for centuries. But I think they are inadequate today to the volume of speech that we now have. And I celebrate that speech. I celebrate that there are voices who, for too long, were not heard in mainstream mass media run by people who look like me, old white men, and that we can now hear online, and we can now understand communities not as a mass, but as communities. But we need to create new institutions. And all we're concentrating on now, like Perotti, is we must do something about all this bad stuff online well, let's turn our attention to the good stuff that we know is out there. Let us build the institutions that find, discover, support, and recommend artistry and talent and authority and quality. And I think we can get there. I am an optimist to a fault. Good, because we need that. (laughs) So
1: let's talk about this editorial ship kind of concept and... and, uh, it was a fascinating thing that the first censor was somebody who just wanted to make sure that sloppy work was disallowed. It wasn't about the ideas in the uh, it was it was the sloppy work of right, putting right. it together. The ideas
2: problem would come later. But yes, yes. yes. Yeah.
1: So we have these institutions that we're all used to, and we just go back to our childhood before they started to to degrade. Uh, I mean, that's probably not true, but that's the way it always looks when you're old, right? right. <laughs> um, but you say, who, who 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 was this? You know, we had the New York Times, we had the Economist, Atlantic, etc. The things that the people who are professors and journalists and writers and, and, and thinkers and professionals in general, the professional class pays attention. It's not the aristocratic class anymore because it doesn't quite exist, um, at least outside of England. <laughs> so um, we trusted them because they lived up to a certain standard. They tried anyway. So, and you, all, you mentioned Cronkite, well, we don't have to just listen to whatever, that's the way it was. Well, it's, it never was exactly the way it was, but right. everybody had an agreement. So, I always like this idea of having a batting average. You know, that What was the batting average of these institutions? And their batting average, I wouldn't put it at 5,500, you know, but it was pretty good, so that you could count on them, and they were reliable. And whereas their competitors might have a batting average of only 100, so you don't pay attention to them, you pay attention to the stars. I have thought since the Internet got started that what what the greatest service, at least for the same group of people, not for everybody else, but for the same group of people, would be a group of highly educated editors who who would read everything that was out there in in those magazines and and papers, plus all the individual things, um, and said, this is the best that was available to read this this week on these topics. And, And also then get the input from all the people who subscribe to that saying... You missed this one. I read this article. It's awfully good. it fits right in, and then they can yeah. give it a yay or a and pass it on. And it seems that that kind of editorial thing is one of the things that should develop in the future. Right now, who has done it are people with other interests. You know You could think of Joe Rogan as a brand, a, an editorial brand that, that, that collects information that is appealing to the, his group, and even Russell Brand is a brand about you know f- for another group, etc. so that each of these stars of the Internet, or, or even You know, TikTok influencers who get 5 million views just saying that they like this ice cream at a local restaurant. You know, I don't know how, but they do. Each of those appeal to a certain group of people. And so in a way, all those voices are getting their own
2: editors by their choice. So... Yes, and I think that this myth of mass media, the Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is, (laughs) was not the way it was for many Americans. Right. 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 Um, And I I cut my teeth on the examiner here in San Francisco and it was still a newspaper. (laughs) And um, I remember going, I I was a Sunday editor. and I remember going to brunch on Sundays, carrying the New York Times. People would say, where did you get that? I hate this paper. And I think I just spent my whole night putting out the San Francisco Examiner Chronicle. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. But people, uh, I I think we convinced ourselves in journalism and media that we were trusted, that we owned trust. Right. It's basically because we couldn't hear the public. Mm-hmm. We couldn't hear different lived experiences. We couldn't understand those different perspectives. I have another book coming out later this year, a little tiny book about the magazine mm-hmm. as, as a form. And it was fascinating to look at the earliest magazines. In the U.S., Harper's, was started in 1850, started with a, its mission was curatorial. Mm-hmm. Its mission on the very first paragraph of the very first page was to say what you said. Uh-huh. We're going to find the best. We're going to find the good stuff out there. Now, it shifted over time. They wanted to create their own things, mm. and, 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 that, and that mission changed. But I think it's a proper mission for the beginning of this new age. Mm-hmm. And newspapers and magazines are still giving you their lava flow of hot takes, mm-hmm. they're still trying to control the public discussion. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that the better public service would be to say, there are tons of amazing voices now we couldn't hear before. Let's try to find, discover, support, recommend, vet, pick your verb, all of those voices. Mm -hmm. Um, And I treasure that. Uh, There are, again, there are jerks Mm -hmm. all over, and there always have been, and there always will be. And we're never going to win playing whack-a-mole with the bad stuff. Right. But there are amazing voices out there. And I, I, I celebrate TikTok because I think it's the first platform that is built for collaboration on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And there's amazing people there, and there's great stuff that's happened there, and there's stupid stuff too, and there's very cute cats there, <laughs> um, and we all need that some at some point in the day. <laughs> so I, I don't think that big old media have adjusted properly mm-hmm. to this. They still think that they've got to create a product they call content. They've got to try to get your attention to it. The business model still requires them to grab your attention before they can get the your eyes on the uh, your eyeballs on the ad. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, I think that we haven't begun to rethink the paradigm of medium. Now, I have my students as a journalism teacher, and I hope they're the ones to do it. Mm -hmm. But I taught a course a year ago with a a colleague of mine named Douglas Rushkoff, an author, called Reinventing the Internet. Mm -hmm. And the students who are all master's age, uh, we were assigning them to come up with some brave imagination for the future of the net. The hard part was they were all they all came of age in the net we know now, mm-hmm. the corporate centralized controlled net, not the open source end to end net that you and I remember because we our beards are gray enough. Right, um, and so it was hard to get the students to imagine that future if they didn't know that past. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's that's why it takes time for people to break out of the expectations of their elders, the expectations of the fat past, the analog of the past, to reinvent that future. And I don't think we've begun to do that yet.
1: Yeah. And I, I think one of the big points that you mentioned in your book, and in addition, I, I've thought about it, is that I, I want the professional class to recognize that, that they're 5 or 10% of the audience and 5% or 10 to 10% of the voices that are out there. And therefore what they want and what appeals to them is not what will appeal to everybody. And that that the internet is for everybody just like anything democratic. In general, people, are not really over their authoritarianism
2: absolutely and, 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 not
1: and that's uh, that's a real big issue with everything that we do in this kind of transformation of our technologies and our politics and everything to democracy it's like oh that's too much trouble let's go back to authoritarianism
2: well you know it's even a, a newsroom can be authoritarian mm-hmm. right an editor-in-chief and i know there's one out here in the past, uh can be authoritarian um, but not him uh no no, no the other one is um, and and there's a there's a hackneyed debate that I'm very tired of about objectivity and, and mm-hmm. news and I've long thought that it's it's a myth There's a wonderful op-ed you can look up by Wesley Lowry formerly of the Washington Post who says that objectivity is by its nature a statement of power mm-hmm. and It's the the people in the newsroom again who look like me old white men who decide that's objective and that's biased mm-hmm. and in doing so in calling someone biased you're rejecting their lived experience and their perspective what I celebrate now about what the internet brings us is all these different experiences and all these different perspectives. And I don't agree with them all, and I block some of them because some of them are jerks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and we're not all going to agree. But there's there's a wealth of context and a wealth of different lives that are there to be had. And so, how do we build an internet that's better at doing that? How do we make an internet that's going to make strangers less strange? Mm-hmm. How do we build an Internet where we value that conversation and we value talent and we don't try to show off by being mean to each other, Mm -hmm. which I've done too. I apologize (laughs) to any of my consultants in the room. Um, But I think it's early. I think we're trying to figure it out. I think that that this is part of the the lesson of Gutenberg, is that all of these years, the public conversation and public discourse were controlled. Mm -hmm. And now they're not. And I think there's this release of energy that says, Mm -hmm. oh, good, now I can say what I wanted all this time. And I hope we get past that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may not.
1: Before we go back to Gutenberg in the start of uh, the print era, um, just one last thing about this big issue about the Internet. And that is, if people are going to transition to all voices have it, we shouldn't be surprised that people with their new voices that they haven't been able to express are going to imitate exactly The authorities have been doing prior and the authorities have been canceling all of their voices so for them to turn around and cancel the authorities is just imitative behavior Mm -hmm. and I don't think people recognize that and say well give them experience let them talk you know let them get used to the fact that they have a voice and then they're gonna stop doing that they'll also learn the kind of behavior that we need to create a consensus in our society because the trick Is going to be to thread the needle of democracy. The trick is going to be that we have enough order that there's no chaos. That the chaos is kept at bay, Um, but not so much that it gets in our way of living our lives. And that's a a very
2: hard needle to to thread. And we also have to recognize that choice is also speech. Mm -hmm. That when the editor of the Chronicle or the editor of the Atlantic decides what to put in and what not to put in, Mm -hmm. that choice is their speech. Mm -hmm. And to um, to insist. To compel them to carry speech, as certain politicians in Florida and Texas are trying to do, Mm -hmm. is not freedom of expression. Uh, To not choose to carry their speech is not cancellation. Mm -hmm. To disagree with somebody's speech is not cancellation. Mm -hmm. This cacophony we have is the sound of democracy, and we're not used to it because things were so controlled. Because Walter Cronkite told us, that's the way it is, and (laughs) that's all we had. Um, and, And I think one of the skills we have to get is to ignore the idiots. I think we've lost that ability. The idiots are now amplified all over on media. And you know, look at what happens now. Every si- It was bad enough that news organizations were writing an entire news story about every single one of Donald Trump's tweets.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now they're writing news stories about every one of Elon Musk's tweets, which is almost as bad. Um, <laughs> why? Why amplify it? Why give him more attention? Because there's this business model and thirst for more content, more content, more attention, more attention... And it's leading us down a hole. What's bad with the Internet was created in mass media. Mm -hmm. We've got to break both paradigms.
1: So I'm just going to violate what I said before and and say one more point about this or ask one more question about this. So we have this mass media problem, and, and the Internet started off free and then became this. How much of that do you think is the fact that advertisers had had a mass audience through the three networks that then broke down and left them orphans for about 15 years and then they found clickbait. And it, do you think that that's a, a, how, how big of a driver is that for what's happening?
2: So I think I, I, I track all this back to a magazine publisher who in the 1890s mm-hmm. uh, discovered that he could sell his magazine at a loss for a dime mm-hmm. and make money on advertising. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of mass media. That was the moment in which you tried to sell an audience on advertising. Now, I like the fact that advertising exists. I'm on a podcast on the network called This Week in Tech where they sell advertising. It helps support the network. Uh, Journalists are supported by advertising. There's nothing evil or wrong about advertising. Mm -hmm. The problem has become in the commodification, even the audience is commodified now. Mm -hmm. And what the internet did was it put buyer and seller directly together. It it commodified content and environment, as we say in in the media business. It um, made it such that uh the uh, the environment didn't matter just the audience data did Mm. and so it ruined the kind of myth of mass media that i teach my students about the myth of mass media was that all readers see all ads so we charge all advertisers for all readers so thus all readers are very valuable and we want to keep all the features we can in the newspaper because we're trying to hold your attention Mm -hmm. online that went away because you didn't read the whole publication that myth went away and you only see one page with one ad, and I'm going to try to grab your eyeballs while I can and give it to you. So that leads to all kinds of bad behavior, clickbait, and, 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 and horrible services. I think there's a way to reinvent advertising mm-hmm. um, because I, I, I think we, we have to pray that we can hold on to some of that subsidy that advertising provided. Mm-hmm. But I think that the internet brought out the worst in what was the mass media business model. Uh, ben Smith, the former editor of BuzzFeed, now at Semaphore, has a new book out called Traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ought to have him here. He's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. Okay. And um, he talks about the apotheosis of this need for traffic. BuzzFeed had this story you probably all remember about this dress that was t- these two colors and those two colors and nobody agreed. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody in media ro- rewrote that, whole, that same story without adding any value to it. Why did they do it? The business model said, I have to have my own page, my own content to get my own eyeballs, my own clicks, my own SEO, my own likes, to get my own ad, my own pennies. Mm-hmm. And that's what lead us, leads us down now to this horrible commodification of content. And I think the only way out of it is, number one, for people to recognize quality again. Number two, uh, f- in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, for us to recognize the value of community and different scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and see if we can rebuild the media business around that. All right. So let's get to Gutenberg
1: and and the, the beginning of the print era. And uh, I think... Maybe not every single detail, because the book is so good on that, and I want everybody to buy the book. But the amount of science that went into figuring this out, uh, you know, it was and the amount of different skills that he had to put together. Just
2: tell the story of, of, of a little bit of what he did. So I teach entrepreneurial journalism, so I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs, and Gutenberg struck me as the ur entrepreneur. And as I as I looked at it more and more, I was fascinated with the idea that that he had to. Uh, meet all kinds of technological challenges and financial challenges mm-hmm. to start the book. Technolo- the, the press was the least of it. The most interesting part in Great Measure was the creation of a handheld mold to make type. That, that, yes. So you're not going to see this on TV. You're not going to see it in the audience, but I'm still going to hold it up. In my hands is this little tiny piece of metal. This is the letter R. You think about it that this little tiny piece of metal was how every bit of text in all of the world was set in type and printed for 450 years. One damned letter at a time. You had to make the letter, which is an incredible task itself. You molded the letter on top of a piece of steel. You pounded that piece of steel into copper. That became a mold. You put that mold into a handheld mold. You pour a metal into it. The metal had to be just the right formulation of Lead, tin, and antimony, so that they could make it very fast. And then you make all these letters. Well, then comes time to set the book. You take the letters one letter at a time, and you set the book that way, right? Then you print the book. Then you can't afford too many of these letters, so you've got to put all the letters back in their pukas in the type case, uppercase and lowercase, uh, as it was invented. And then you, if, if the book sells, You've got to do it all over again. That's how text and print were made for almost a, half a millennium.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, just amazing. So Gutenberg had to deal with the metallurgical problems of making type. He had to deal with the chemical issues of making ink. It was just the right consistency so it would be sticky enough to be able to work. He had to deal with getting the right kind of paper. We thought it came from Italy, but later research says it probably came from closer to home. He had to understand how to wet the paper to make it ha- take the, the, the impression well enough. Um, that was just the publishing part, and that was hard enough. But then he was working in a business that required, and this is familiar in San Francisco, risk capital. So he had to go get money to pay for the space, the presses, the metal, the paper, before the first gulden would come in. And he didn't have the money, so he went to a guy named Johann Fust, who backed him. And the myth had it that Fust robbed him blind and poor Gutenberg died penniless. Not true. Um, Fust was somewhat of a a partner, somewhat of a lender, somewhat of an investor. And at the end of the Bible process, they had a court proceeding to decide to split up the business because they did split up. But Gutenberg ended up okay. Fust and his son-in-law Peter Schiffer went on and published amazing books from then on. The issue is, though, that Gutenberg had to have the money, and they disagreed about where the money would go because there weren't enough lawyers in the mm-hmm. time. Uh, they would, you would come along later. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and so he, he had to have a business sense about it, too. Then they also had to sell the books. They had to figure out, how, and, and we believe that the first printing of the Bible was well sold out before it was, it was finished mm-hmm. uh, because there were, people saw p- parts of it in the Frankfurt Book Fair. So Gutenberg did all of that. He was the original complete entrepreneur in that sense. Again, he didn't invent movable type. It happened elsewhere. He had to take advantage of things that had happened before. Uh, The paper quality uh, used to be, by the way, that some centuries before there was no space between words, and uh, that wouldn't have worked out very well in print. Um, And there were all kinds of changes like this that came along that made it the moment But he still had to experiment with, he must have experimented as much as Thomas Edison did Mm -hmm. of how to get the metal right, how to get the printing right, how to get all kinds of other things right. But we still don't know exactly how he did it. He left no record at all. We put it together by how printing was done soon thereafter. And there are other theories about how he made the original letters. Uh, There's an executive now at Google in, in AI who did a theory when he was at Princeton that it was actually set in sand, it was very different it gets very geeky. I won't. I won't go into it. Um, but it was a. It was a very difficult technological, financial, uh, operational task to even figure out how to keep multiple press lines busy on mm. one book, so they would end up matching in the same place. Mm-hmm. First time ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it a, it's just a, an amazing thing. So I was fascinated by Gutenberg as this character, even though we don't know him. The pictures you see of him with a beard. He didn't have a beard at that time. They're almost certain. We don't know what he looks like. He never printed his name. You know, what would we, if you invented the press, wouldn't be the first thing you, you do is print your own name? That's what we do now, <laughs> right? He did, apparently didn't do that. Uh, we don't know why he was in it. Was it to make money? Was it to change the church? We don't know why. Uh, but he did it. And he 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 created this amazing technology that changed the world. And that, I think, is worth celebration. And... He even made money the first time, which almost never
1: happens with an entrepreneur.
2: Yes, he made money. At least here in Silicon Valley, uh, there were there were also yes, well that's true. Uh, but the VCs do pretty well. Yeah, um, he made money on, on the Bible was profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made other things. He made uh, grammar textbooks, and and he made indulgences, which leads us to to Martin Luther. Uh, and uh, his partner uh, Fust, when they split apart, and and Schiffer went on to make beautiful books. And that business was handed down over generations. Mm-hmm. The, the second printing business in the world lasted for more than 100 years. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So, shall we go to Luther?
2: Sure. <laughs>
1: okay. So, Luther, not thinking that his uh, posting of these 95 theses on the uh, door was going to get that
2: widespread, but then was printed and, and widespread. So, how did that happen? That was So, we're not even sure whether Luther actually posted on the door of the Wittenberg yeah. Chapel. Uh, But we do know that his theses got printed, uh, which is critical here. Mm -hmm. They not only got printed, but there was a very important decision that Luther made that had an impact on so much, which was to publish in German, not in Latin. Mm -hmm. The theses were intended for uh, disputation among scholars, but it got printed in, in German, and that did a lot of things. Number one... Around the turn of the century, sixteen hundred uh, 1500, the book business was in shambles. And it was a rotten business. Sounds like Silicon Valley, right? It sounds like 2000. Um, too much investment went into print. They printed uh, the, the ancients that uh, people were fed up with and had plenty of. They didn't understand marketing. They didn't understand how to do it. They were desperate. They were begging the Pope, to help us out here. We got warehouses filled with these damn books. <laughs> Luther saved Printing and saved the book industry because the demand for his not books but pamphlets was tremendous. And of course, then the Catholic Church and the Counter-Reformation came in as well. In printing in German, I think it's also critical, and this is a point made by Elizabeth Eisenstein, who's the creator of the field of book history, is that it it um, enabled the codification and the standardization of a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, Umberto Eco says that a dialect is a language without an army and a navy. And (laughs) across Europe, across the German-speaking lands, of course, there were tons of different dialects. But when Luther decided to publish in German and publish his Bible in German, as time went on, he standardized German and thus started to become the notion of a nation. Mm -hmm. And especially there where there wasn't one. And the idea of nations and nation-states and borders, one can argue, came in some measure because of standardization of language from Luther.
1: They say the same thing about t- television in Italy, you know, that, that the language from Milan to Sicily was now... You know, and you can even say that you know, Walter Cronkite's uh, Midwestern accent standardized... You know, didn't get rid of all the accents, but there right. was a standard American English. So that argument has been used lots of times. It's very interesting that each of the things that goes out to more and more people... Um, does that. So you had a very interesting little aside in there about the same time. It was about Henry VIII having commissioned a book. Where did you find that? I had never read that. I read uh, plenty of things. I, I got to look yes. up the sources.
2: Yeah. Uh, he, he commissioned... He, Henry VIII said this report, and, and, and I think this would be a, a great novel to do. Yeah. According to this report, um, and I, I, I would go into the footnotes right now, but it doesn't make good TV, <laughs> uh, commissioned a... Uh, uh, an Old Testament in Hebrew because he was debating whether to convert to Judaism to deal with his divorces. Imagine Jewish England, right? It just changes everything. Yeah. If Henry VIII had done that, I, so I don't know, I'm sure some historians will, will doubt it, and but I don't care now because it just makes a great idea for speculative fiction, doesn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, it sure uh, does. And it's like, It sure shows that all he cared about was the divorce. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. We already knew that, actually. (laughs) The other interesting thing, too, about about the the Reformation, because one can debate about the... I don't want to get in trouble here. One can debate about the roots of the Reformation in England because of Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. But with Luther and company um, in Europe, it was a whole different beast. And one might argue that we have ahead of us a reformation and a counter-reformation. And I wonder sometimes whether or not Black Lives Matter online is our racial reckoning and reformation, and January 6th was the counter-reformation. That when more voices are able to be heard, those who held control of speech before resent it, try to stop it, try to deal with it. And I think that's what we see happening in this country now. And it can blow up. It blew up into a 30 years war in Europe do we have a 30 years war ahead of us? I was I was debating uh, a German regulator at a journalism conference in Italy. A barrel of laughs, the guy. <laughs> and I made this joke that maybe we have a 30 years war ahead of us, and he said, it is too soon to joke about that.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> well... I think you, you, you talk about Erasmus and, and, and Thomas More and Martin Luther, and it's interesting because uh, Thomas More and Erasmus were trying to reform the church a little bit. And then Luther really took it, and they said, hey, you can't do that, and Erasmus you know, and, and More both uh, got into polemics with him. Um, but then people took it further than Luther wanted to, and Luther got into polemics with them for taking it too far. So it's uh, you know the usual kind of thing. Like you say, we don't know what's coming because... Somebody has their idea about what reform is. It's polite reform, and then slightly impolite reform, and then it's totally impolite reform. So um, I I find that that repetition is very interesting when thinkers come along and come up with something.
2: You know, as as you say that, the entire history of print is, is about the history of power, right? Who has the power to print? A lot more people were able to speak and read and learn and listen in print versus scribal. Culture And let's be important to too that uh, one of the reviewers got mad at me because I didn't point out scribal culture continued long after print It did not die. It did not replace one could argue the scribal culture continued until the typewriter so but but it was a shift of of worldview around that and um, I forgot where I was going.
1: Well, then I'll tell my joke So please <laughs> I used to make a joke uh, when people were talking about unemployment going up too high and everything like that. I said, we can always have unemployment. All we need to do is outlaw the Xerox machine and bring the scribes back. <laughs> you know, everybody will be busy. We can, always be, we can always keep everybody busy if we do things inefficiently. So anyway, that was... Which when we you talk about do. the scribes, Yes, uh, and I, I'm sure the scribal union won't like that joke. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so... You also talk about Shakespeare mm. and how... He made money, but they, they didn't print the plays. But, but, and, and you also said that he wrote more sonnets because, uh, because that was more popular when, when they were printed. So why don't you tell a little bit about Shakespeare's time? So now we're talking another 100 and... Uh, what is it? Another 100? No, no, it's not that far. 1,600. We were 1600s, talking 1535, yeah. so we're talking like 65 years later.
2: Yeah, we're, we're, making, we're going fast here. Yeah, yeah um,
1: we've got to. We've only got an hour. century of
2: the time. <laughs> Uh, so there wasn't much of a... There was somewhat of, but wasn't a big market for printed plays. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the reason for this was that the um, the plays were owned by their companies. Shakespeare was a member of a company and a part owner in that company and an actor in that company. And the owners of companies didn't necessarily want their plays printed because they would be run by others and that takes away your box office and that's no good. Uh, there were uh, printed... Uh, plays from Shakespeare, there were also sonnets. Mm-hmm. he found that there was more demand. One scholar believes that there was more demand for verse than than not, so he wrote more verse that mm-hmm. he was responsive to his audience and to his marketplace uh, and As you all know, uh, uh, after he died, uh, the first folio came out. friends of his published, and we just had the anniversary of the first folio, which is a gorgeous compilation of plays that without it, we would have lost some of his plays because some of the plays. Were done horribly in bad editions. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was used for some, and he got rid of his name being used. There's a really bad example of, uh, of some of the famous speeches that were printed very badly. If I could find it quickly, I'd read it to you. It's funny, <laughs> um, to be or not to be. That one, well, really yes. Um, and um, so, what came out was that in studying what was printed, Shakespeare was more popular. Did have more plays printed than his counterparts in the market at the time, did help establish a demand for plays. Now, at the same time, they were not seen as very high class and high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bodleian Library at uh, Oxford, um, uh, Bodley, who founded it, said he really didn't want any plays there because it was just kind of junk. <laughs> uh, a few <laughs> once in a while, but he didn't necessarily say who. <laughs> so, so it's also interesting, I think, how the culture changes and accepts mm-hmm new forms as it goes on you mentioned in in,
1: on that point that poetry was far more popular before the printed word and and after printing uh, prose uh, took over you want to explain why that might have been
2: memory memory right when you go back to plato arguing that the the writing was going to ruin us because it would ruin our memory uh the same view was that the same thing would happen out of print because people remembered things through verse through rhyme Mm. and there was less need to remember Right? Same need we have now is we don't have to remember anything ourselves because we have Google. Thank you very much. We don't have to spell anything because we have Google. Um, <laughs> we don't have to add anything up because we have calculators. We don't need
1: to know geography.
2: Uh, because we got Google, map, Google Maps. <laughs> so um, uh, that too changed the nature of culture and of text.
1: I'll say one thing about the, the, the Plato thing. It's one of the, he, he was an ironist. I mean, he had a lot of satire in it. So he's, he's writing that writing is going to ruin yes. our future. Yes. Just, like, just like when he has Socrates say, "Don't write anything down that I say, because you know that ruins the authenticity of it." And he's obviously writing it all down because he doesn't believe his teacher on that one. Irony was alive. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Shakespeare had uh, his day, and now why don't you talk about Montaigne? Because uh, that's another uh, big movement a big shift
2: uh, Again, these, these four that the, the Cervantes, Montaigne, Shakespeare, and the newspaper all came within a few years of 1600. Mm-hmm. and Montaigne is fascinating because um, he was the first by some he, he invented the form of the essay he mm-hmm. used he created the name of it of the essay he wasn 't sure who he was talking to mm-hmm. he was talking to himself, he was talking to a friend or he was talking to the world and there 's wonderful books, Sarah Bakewell wrote a wonderful book about about Montaigne. And there's a lot of great quotes I have in the book about people who say that he still feels fresh to this day. He still feels like he's talking to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Um, and he created this form of the essay. Now, one could argue that he also raised the bar for inclusion in public discourse mm-hmm. that you had to be a writer, you had to know how to write to be respected. Uh, because that's, in a sense, what Montaigne did. And I think it's an interesting contrast to get way ahead of us ourselves. Mm-hmm that AI comes along and does a pretty good job of writing. Mm-hmm. And people like me who say, I'm a writer, I'm special. Well, maybe I'm not so special. <laughs> uh, maybe um, that's not the essence of what the skill is. Maybe that's not what it's really about. And so Montaigne fascinates me because he sets something in motion. Other amusing point is he's also kind of the patron saint of bloggers. So <laughs> talk about yourself a lot. And, uh, and as a blogger, I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm going to go to a question from our online audience because it's about uh, AI, since you just mentioned it. question is, what are your thoughts on ChatGPT AI? What are your concerns about the growing tech
2: affecting journalists and journalism? So I went down to Google this morning, uh, and I, one of my, my first book was a book called What Would Google Do? So I'm, I live, love, eat at Google. I carry an Android phone. I'm fine with Google. I think they're a fascinating company. Um, I think that the rush to AI is mistaken in many ways. Hmm. Uh, machine learning has been around. That's how we get Google Translate. That's how it knows what word we're going to say next. Um, that's how uh, Maps works. All kinds of things work around AI. And it's, and it's machine learning is very, very smart, I think. That's a dumb thing to say. Uh, <laughs> machine learning can do lots of things. Um, so I, 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 I welcome that. The rush of attention that came out with ChatGPT and, and, and the um, large language models. I think it is misplaced in a lot of ways. First, I think it's a mistake for Microsoft to have put it into Bing because people expect it to give back facts and it doesn't know how to do it. All it knows how to do is predict the next word. That's all it does. Mm-hmm. And it does that well. It's not hallucinating. It's not making mistakes. It's just predicting a word that comes out of our own cliches of, of our world. Um, there's issues, obviously, about the bias that is inherent in it because it's the bias inherent in everything that it reads from everything online of who had the power to publish before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some companies are rushing to make more content out with AI, but content is fundamentally commodified. We, already, we have lots of content. We don't need more content for content's sake. Mm-hmm. But that's what the business model produces, is let's, let's junk it up. I think it commodifies it badly. However, I do think that there are some interesting things to come. Today at Google, I saw what is now called uh, Notebook ML, uh, previously called uh, Project Tailwind. Steven Johnson, who's a wonderful author who lives in the Bay Area, uh, is down there now as the editorial director of this. And it's not trying to create content. Mm-hmm. It's trying to help the content creator. Mm-hmm. I find that very interesting. What uh, a Notebook ML does is you can give it documents. It will come back. It can summarize them. It can create a glossary out of them. It can answer questions you have about them. It can help you organize your thoughts around them. Um, as somebody who's not very organized, I wish I'd had it for, for this <laughs> Um So I'm, I'm okay with those kinds of things. What worries me most about AI is first stupid uses of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have heard the, the lawyer, uh, the poor schmuck lawyer who used ChatGPT mm-hmm. to f- do a court filing. I went and covered his hearing before the judge and sat there Uh, you as an attorney would be fascinated having (laughs) having sat there, where um, the lawyer's lawyer, and yes, when your lawyer hires a lawyer, you know you're in trouble. (laughs) The lawyer's lawyer said to the judge, oh, thank you, Your Honor, for showing the world the danger of ChatGPT. And the judge said, I did not set out to do anything of the sort. And the judge said, I've heard you talk a lot today about a mistake being made. And yes, there was a mistake being made that the lawyer first went to ChatGPT. But then when he was informed by opposing counsel and by the judge that these cases that he had cited didn't exist, what did the lawyer do? He went back to ChatGPT. Are these real? Yeah. <laughs> then he went back to ChatGPT again, and he had it turn out the cases themselves, which were gibberish in the, in the words of the judge. The problem was not the technology. The problem was the humanity. The problem was the bad use of the technology. And then the other thing that strikes me, and this is way off topic, but I'll, I'll do it for one second, is the kind of cult mentality that's starting to develop around these large language models in the companies. This, this uh, supposedly existential risk, stop me before I destroy mankind, it's bull. It's absolute bull. Um, and, and if you want to read more about this, go to Timnit Gebru, who is one of the people who was fired from Google from, from the um, AI uh, uh, team, and a guy named um, uh, Emil Torres. And the two of them together, uh, talk about long-termism and these other philosophies that I find prevalent among these AI worshipers that I think are themselves dangerous because what they say is We have to pay attention to all the all the future of humanity uh, 10 to the 54th people in the future so you all don't matter so much now <laughs> <laughs> And that's disturbing and it leads to a lot of I think dangerous thinking so the tool is fascinating. The tool can be used by journalists well, but I think that it will get cooties first, as we used to say in third grade, uh, <laughs> because people will misuse it and because the people who bring it out are, are uh, egotistical.
1: I can see an insult coming on, a, on a, you know undergraduates turning in their papers to their professors and the professor says, congratulations, I can tell you didn't use chat GPT. Because your writing is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so embarrassing.
2: <laughs> anyway. Um, but, but the other thing about ChatGPT that I find fascinating, going back to Montaigne, is that I think one interesting use of it, of, of large language models, not just the brand, is to extend literacy. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm a writer. People will listen to I'm here right now because I write. Right. Well, that's a position of tremendous privilege that that I sit up here right now with you because I have that skill or some of you may disagree, but (laughs) I got printed. Whereas I think that what what these large language models can do is they can help people who are intimidated by writing, which is most people Mm -hmm. to tell their own stories, to illustrate their stories, to to say what they want to say, Mm -hmm. to do the code switching that is necessary to the snobs of the world about language. And I think there's an opportunity to extend the power of writing to more people. Um, We'll see. It's almost like a very fancy and sophisticated
1: version of hallmark cards, because because that's what people do to express their emotions Ah. to other people. You know, they they have to have somebody else have written it for them.
2: I thought you were just saying that it 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 turns out the worst of our cliches. No, no, no.
1: (laughs) I, I think it's you know people. You, you, you said people are, are intimidated by expressing yes. themselves yes. emotionally, and especially in writing, and that's a fairly large part of the population. And and then these services are there to help them. And so I, I didn't mean it as an insult; I meant it as a
2: it's kind of the, the this, new Cyrano de Bergeron. Yeah
1: Yeah, this is yeah exactly, <laughs> even better. Um, and I, you're talking about writers, it's very interesting. If you just go back 150 years, you know how many writers were there in the world. You know, and how many are there now? All kinds of people are writing. Now, you know, the quality, and maybe the percentage quality is about the same as before, but there's so many now. And I think that that's one of the things I take a lot of optimism from, is that, you know, only so many minds, let's say 400,000, 150 years ago, were, were willing to try to express themselves abstractly in words, in writing. And now, it, whether they're better at it or worse at it or whatever, it's millions and millions and millions of people. And that's... That's an advance for human civilization, I think, for people to, to not be intimidated and to try to do it.
2: Yeah, I, I really think it is, and, 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 and to be creative. I, as I said, I celebrate TikTok because of the collaboration. I celebrate mm. YouTube. Uh, and there's, again, there's a lot of stupidity there, but there's some really good, interesting stuff there. Um, and, and I think that the fact that young people today can express themselves mm. in all these ways. And I'm also fascinated that we go back from you know, the alphabet and the letter and now we have augmenting alphabets, in a way, between emoji and memes, mm-hmm. uh, which also kind of extend literacy in new and interesting ways.
1: Yeah, I, I love I love the, uh, where the emojis are up next to alphabets, you know, and it's the hieroglyphs and Chinese characters and the emojis from, from again, going back to where we were before yeah. to express something else. And why don't we talk, uh, we'll go to the questions uh, right away after that, but why don't you talk a little bit about this, the idea again what it was before that printing, and now we're coming back to it again. Just the voices, uh, except for on a totally different scale. Because what you're talking about is village life, basically, before. The, the people probably were, I mean, they, they were restricted by the religions and the ideas that, that were imposed, but they didn't pay that much attention to
2: <laughs> Well, Let me be clear that the technology is not determinate. I'm not a technological determinist. Yeah. I don't believe that, that there's a set path that comes from the technology. Um, and though I'm an optimist, you can hear, uh, I'm not a fool and well, someone might say I am, but, uh, I I am an optimist to a fault, but I don't believe that we're doomed. Neither do I believe we're headed to utopia. What I do believe is that we have choices to make, that we are responsible, all of us for the future of the internet and society Mm. upon it. And so it is worthwhile to listen to and learn these lessons from history in the past. So the, the, the conceit of the Gutenberg parenthesis is a handy way to do this, to ask what were the presumptions of print? What what made that print age the print age? Um, there are those who argue there's no such thing as print culture. But I think that we were definitely influenced by print and it became a, if nothing else, a metaphor for so much in life. You turn the page, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what I think comes next is decisions to be made about the society that we want to build in this new reality where everyone can speak they could mm-hmm. all speak before but now they can be heard mm-hmm. um, some might say well there's too much speech but i, I say who's going to decide whose speech is too much mm-hmm. um, some might say that that we're we're corrupted and awful I, we figured out print after a 30 years war and a few peasants wars and a reformation and counter Counter reformation i think we'll figure this out too i hope without as much surus mm-hmm. and difficulty mm-hmm. um But it's not a set path. The point is, we have choices. And we've got to make those choices based on the privilege we have of learning back from what happened in the transition into the age of print.
1: And it seems that one of the crucial parts of making that a a greater success than it will otherwise be is for the professional class to recognize that their voice is not going to disappear just because somebody else is talking and that their group of thinkers and talkers and discussers and the scientists discuss it, this is not, none of that is going to go away. It will all be admired for what it produces, even if the other people don't take part in it. And, uh, and that this method that we have, this technology that we have, is going to make sure that everything of any interest is still there. I always think about architecture that's been lasting for a long time, and you could tell, uh, you know, the Pantheon is still standing in in Rome after 2,000 years. And people say that's a miracle after 2,000 years. It's not a miracle of architecture. It's a miracle of the committee that runs that place because at least 15 times they had to decide over 2,000 years. It'll cost us more to keep this the way it is than to rip it down and build something new. But we're going to spend more money and keep it. And that's when Rome was high and when Rome was down in the Middle Ages when only 30,000 people lived there. And, and
2: I know committees. I, I, I find that to be miraculous. <laughs> yeah, and I think another way to look at this is institutions. And, and I think that institutions were created out of print. I've talked about editing and publishing and copyright. Uh, I could argue that copyright is outmoded now. Uh, in the book, I, I propose a, a different model that I call credit right for, for collaborative strings of creation. Um, I think there are institutions we want to support and preserve The library, for example, I think is critical in this age. There are institutions we need to update, like copyright. There are institutions I mentioned in the book, like, uh, I would not have guessed that policing in prisons would have been so challenged by public speech uh, Mm -hmm. on the Internet. I think we have to create some new institutions that help us once again, as I've said before, find and support quality and creativity online. Uh, those institutions are our institutions. They are the ones that we as a society agree to create or to tear down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So uh,
1: if anybody in the audience has a question, you can... Or an argument or a challenge. <laughs> Anything is fine. All right. So um, the uh, maybe if we don't have cards, uh, Dan will bring you a microphone, and I'll, I'll ask a question first before we get to that off of the uh, I'm happy to be in dialogue with uh, people but we with need, Yeah, but through. we need the uh, microphone. Microphone, yep. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge facing journalists today? That's a question from my <laughs> online thing. Everything. I always love these questions, you know. Yeah.
2: Um, everything. I'll get back to you in an hour and a half. Right, right. <laughs> um, the, well, if, if that person were here, I would pull the, the teacher's trick of saying, what do you think it is? Time. <laughs> um, That's why it's online. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, hello, person. Um, <laughs> so I teach journalism, as you know. I've been a journalist uh, my whole career, uh, which has been a long career. And I have a bit of a crisis of my profession of late. I'm working on the next book about the internet, and and it turned into, uh, in great measure, a critique of moral media's moral panic about the net, mm-hmm. which I think has been not productive. And... As I think about it, that's only one of my critiques. Uh, we can look at coverage of the elections. We can look at the coverage of how Donald Trump was amplified and that media still have not learned their lesson. We can look at uh, media's inability, I think, to deal with history and perspective. And I'm bothered by my own profession. I also think that we haven't seen enough reinvention in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who I think is in the audience who helped me um, fund the center I worked on Uh, at my school to try to come up with new models and we can come up with new models and new ideas. But what we see these days is that the, the, the uh, legacy publishers are trying to envision protectionism and lobbying as a strategy for the future. Mm -hmm. And it's no strategy. Hmm. And so they're trying to get money out of the companies down on the peninsula and they're trying to get laws passed that disadvantage their competitors. And that's no strategy for the future. I tell my entrepreneurial students that if you're a journalist, you tend to see a problem and you report it and you think, my job is done, I'm going to the bar. (laughs) If you are an engineer or a scientist, you see a problem and you look for the solution and 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 the explanation. If you're an entrepreneur, you look for the opportunity. There are so many problems now to deal with. I would want to see journalism as an institution reinvent itself in new ways. If we have this cacophony of voices and we can't find the good stuff among the bad, wouldn't it be proper for journalism to find its role to find the good voices Mm -hmm. rather than concentrating on, look at all these jerks out here? If we're not sure about the facts that we see from witnesses online, wouldn't it be sensible for journalism to reinvent itself somewhat to turn into vetting and and, and authenticating what we see there? If we have difficulty talking to each other, uh, then wouldn't it be great to have journalism convene us into productive discussion. If we hate each other because we, we are afraid of strangers as a society, wouldn't it be great if once again we try to make strangers less strange? These can be new missions for a rethought journalism. What's the business model? I don't promise yet. Yeah. <laughs> but that follows the value. And I think we've got to change journalism from being a factory, making a product that we call content, into a service that brings communities together for a better society so that's a big challenge
1: yeah that's that certainly covers in in much less than an hour and a half what <laughs> i was expecting for that um you mentioned moral panic in that answer and you have something in there about how when um early movies were said well that's not that's not pornographic that's art and so on and there was a moral panic about pornography and illegitimacy that, that that would take over. That was in the 60s, early 60s. So what do you say to people who say that moral panic was justified because the illegitimacy rate at that time was 3% and right now it's 40%? And therefore, by accepting that, you know, we, we should have been morally panicked about that. And it's still, it's still only 3% in Japan. So what did we do wrong? Well... And it wasn't pornography because Japan has that.
2: If my father, if my grandfather, rather, were not illegitimate and and my great-grandfather had married my great-grandmother, my name today would probably be be Riley. (laughs) So I think to call human beings illegitimate is itself a really kind of sick symbol of what we think of as morality in society. Mm. So that moralism to say that's wrong and we're going to condemn it, we're going to condemn the people around it, is what we get wrong too much. The problem I have with moral panic, and it's a running joke on This Week in Google, the the podcast I'm on, that they now have a graphic that goes up every time I say it. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I get accused of saying it too much, but I don't say it nearly enough. Here we go again. So um, (laughs) the problem with moral panic is its simplicity. Mm -hmm. It's simplistic. It says that, oh, I've found the cause for our ills in society, Mm -hmm. and I've found the folk devil who's causing it, And I'm then not going to investigate further into the deeper causes. The Internet did not make us racist. We are a racist society. If we turn off the Internet tomorrow, racism and bigotry and sexism and hate do not go away. They were already here. And in fact, part of the trope about the Internet is that it turns us into filter bubbles and echo chambers, right? We all hear that. There's a lot of research. There's a very good book called Are Filter Bubbles Real by uh, Axel Bruns that looks at all the research on these topics and says that it's actually not true. There's a, uh, a social psychologist in Denmark named Michael Bong-Petersen whose theory with his research is that the filter bubbles we live in are the ones in our real lives. Mm-hmm. And that we construct, there's a book called The The Great Sort, about how we move into communities to be with people like ourselves. We join the same clubs. We join the same work. We want to be around people who are like ourselves. That's our filter bubble. And then we come on the internet and what Peterson says, with good evidence, is that what the internet actually does is it pops that bubble that we constructed around us in our real lives. It, It exposes us to people that we think are strange, that we don't like. It gives us a mighty stock of spitballs to throw at them. <laughs> and, but the internet didn't make us hate. We brought that hate to the net and the net was a convenient place where we could see the object of that hate because we weren't exposed to those people in our filter bubble. So what do we do about that? We've got to figure out how to expose people to people better. Um, and the, the, the irony here is the internet is probably the way to do it. It's not the cause of our problems. It could be a cure if we figure out how to do it right. Yeah, I won't say cure. It could be a treatment treatment
1: Um, Maybe but you know to to reduce moral panic uh, We could rebrand things and say we're just becoming Puritans again like America because I I love the professor at one of the Boston universities did a study and found that um, 47% something like that of all the births in the Puritan uh, villages were within six months after the marriage Certificate. Went <laughs> yeah. back and looked at all the birth dates and all of the marriage certificate dates. So we could just say we're all being Puritans. Again. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that should take care of the problem.
2: That's true about culture too. Yeah. Right? If, if you look back at, at, at previous cultural panics about media, um, uh, there was the snobbery that existed, uh, things that we now love. Rock music, for God's sakes. <laughs> we had someone. We to- have a, a, a microphone for
1: her. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Sorry.
0: Hi, um, I'm, I'm Crystal van der room I am a f- with Flipboard, and um, what you suggest journalists should do is what we do, as you know. <laughs> and we do it with journalists. Um, I do think there's one important aspect that you're leaving out, that um, yes, there are jerks on the web, right? And we can block them and filter them out. But I think, um, you know, research has shown that um, I think or more than 40% of the tweets um, Trump tweeted in the lead-up to the 2016 elections were amplified by Russian bots. Mm -hmm. Um, Misinformation about coronavirus, between 40% and 50% was bots. So the weaponization, it's not people are jerks. Yes, those exist too, but the fact that it can be so weaponized, and it's being weaponized, Mm, the protests and riots in in France... um, a platformer today wrote that um Macron was asking mayors maybe we should shut down shut down um Snapchat and uh and TikTok and maybe that will solve the problem. Um so there's so yeah there's jerks on the web and there's real life. Like January 6th, you mentioned there's real life. It's more than jerks. So I would love to get your thoughts on that.
2: Crystal you're, you I'm, thank you for the challenge. I appreciate that. <laughs> um just what I wanted. And I agree Uh, We need to expect more of the hosts, the platforms. I I think think one of the great mistakes that was made right here in Silicon Valley, right here in San Francisco, and by me as well, was we were too optimistic, right? Mark Zuckerberg said, we're going to connect the whole world. I think a connected world is a good idea, too. Uh, My friend, Sivavadyanathan, who wrote uh, kind of the the opposite of my books, I wrote, what would Google do? He wrote the Googleization of everything. I wrote public parts. He wrote um, anti-social media. <laughs> um, so, you know, Siva says that companies are bound to be companies that are bound to be not good and that it was just a mistake to connect all the humans in the world because this would happen. I'm a little more optimistic than my friend Siva. I think it is still good to connect us. I think that, that, the, that the amount of bad that is out there isn't quite isn't what we think it is. I'm going to quote something in a second. Um, but I think the mistake that Facebook made and other companies made was that they were too optimistic. They didn't take responsibility. As I said before, choice is also speech, and Facebook is 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 Zuck's garden party. And if you went to Zuck's house and people did at his house what they do on Facebook, then he wouldn't want them in his house, right? So why are they on Facebook? Well, because it's expensive to make judgments. It's troublesome to make judgments because you're going to get in trouble with whoever you're taking down. Right, the left wing in America says, "Take down this hate speech." The right wing says, "That's our hate speech. You must carry it." (laughs) So you're you're stuck in a vice there. What I would wish for, I'm trying to write this for the next book right now on the plane on the way back, trying to figure this out. Maybe you can help me. Is that I would wish that we would make covenants of mutual obligation. I'm a lapsed Presbyterian, so that's why the word covenant works. (laughs) My my, my sister is a Presbyterian minister, so I called her about this the other day. A covenant is the covenant of God was basically, you follow my path and I'll be nice to you, right? I've said very badly. Um, And a covenant has mutual obligation. The problem is that the platforms made community standards that were not of the community, were imposed upon the community for the company's benefits, and the companies made no uh, concurrent assurances of what they would do that we could hold them accountable to. But more than that, they didn't have a North Star. It's not enough, I think, just to say, let's connect everybody. Why? To what end? What should we do together? What do we want to do together? And, and if you don't like the North Star that they propose, well, then you don't have to use that service. But I think the service should start by saying, this is why we exist. And none of them did because of that early optimism, of which I was a part, was, wow, well, the internet's going to connect everybody. It's a great thing. We didn't anticipate enough, we, I'm not a technologist, but I'll, I'll throw myself into the, the blame here. Didn't anticipate enough the manipulation, the organized manipulation that would occur, and the resources that would be necessary to deal with that. I started a whole bunch of newspaper sites for advanced publications. And I remember the day uh, that we saw that we started forums for all kinds, of high school wrestling, I don't know if I'll get you in trouble with TV here, but I'll no, it are. anyway. Go right ahead. So uh, <laughs> we knew there was trouble the first time we saw a, 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 um, uh, a headline in the forum about Coach Nutgrabber. <laughs> well, we said, we got to have a moderator for this, yes. right? We realized we had to invest in the community. We couldn't just put it up and say, here's a bunch of paint cans, and here's a bunch of brushes. Have at it, because you know what would happen. So I think that we now come to a time of responsibility for these companies? Pardon me for the long answer, but it's a good question. My hope is that we change our notion of scale. That what we inherited from mass media was the idea we had to be the biggest. We had to have Twitter, had to be the whole world. Well, Twitter, uh, Zuckerberg himself said to me, no two people on Earth ever see the same Facebook or Twitter or anything else. They're not mass media. You don't broadcast to the whole world. You just talk to a small number of people. So I love Mastodon. Mastodon's small. 2 million active monthly users. But I find a critical mass of people I like there. I like Blue Sky so far. I like uh, Threads okay so far, right? And because they're smaller, the scale is less, and I think that we can reimagine how we manage each other. Uh, In the front row is my friend, Lisa LaPorte, who is the president of the Twit network, This Week in Tech. Uh, They run a Mastodon server as I know you've been working on the same area at Flipboard. Um, And that brings it down to a scale where you can imagine moderating this and dealing with these kinds of problems that it doesn't mean the scale that you can try to ruin an entire election of democracy by using this big platform. So my hope is that we move down from this huge sense of scale that we had to have we inherited from mass media down to a more manageable scale, one. Two, I hope that the hosts and companies of the future are... Uh, have their North Stars. Number three, I hope that the regulation that does come concentrates on holding them accountable for the promises that they should make. We'll see. Um, Four, I hope that we have a world of open source where there's easier competition for the big guys. But I'm still an optimist. I made a mistake before. Probably mistaken again. (laughs) But What what can we do but try?
1: All right. Well, we One last question from the online audience. And it's a personal question, so let's end there. What is the best piece of professional advice that you've received, and who was it from in your career? You you, you don't have to say best. You can just say one of. Then you won't have to worry about
2: all your other friends calling you and say, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, when I left uh, the San Francisco Examiner and I went to People Magazine, Jim Wilsey, who was then managing editor of the Examiner, said, so you got tired of journalism, huh? (laughs) <laughs> um, it's really hard to come up with the best. It, I've had so many great mentors, and I've had such a lucky career where uh, I was going to go to law school, mm-hmm. but I said, three more years of this school stuff? No. You know. well, what am I going to do? <laughs> I looked around, and That's I right. was on the school paper, and I, and I chose to do that. And I had a, much, a bunch of very lucky breaks, and I came... To uh, San Francisco as a young guy, and uh, I was the Sunday editor of the San Francisco Examiner Chronicle. Nobody liked it, but I had fun doing it. (laughs) And uh, uh, I was made a columnist. I was the 87th uh, sacrificial lamb against Herb Cain. You, the older ones, you know. Um, I went to New York, and I got to start a magazine. Um, And I had great mentors along the way. Jim Wilsey was one, Pat Ryan, who was the editor of People when I was there, was another. Um, And I could go on and on and on and on and then some of the deans I've worked with at my school and I've learned from my students as well. I Think the most important lesson I've learned I'll put it that way is the value of listening I've had the privilege of starting a degree with my colleague Carrie Brown at at CUNY in in, in, At the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. I should be clear to say that name here the city of all cities (laughs) Um, my friend Craig uh, in engagement journalism, which is all about listening to the public about listening to communities we serve, about not thinking that we just broadcast, and that's all we do. Mm. Um, That changed my view of all of this. I I, I guess the moment that changed me... Sorry, you asked for autobiography, and what do you got? Absolutely. Um, I I was at the World Trade Center on 9-11, and survived, obviously, uh, and chose to write about that a few days later and start a new blog. Mm -hmm. And... A friend of mine, Nick Denton, sent a post that I'd written to some friends in L.A. who had a blog and they wrote about it and they linked back to me and I wrote about it and linked back to them. And that was a moment that said, wow, it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's happening at different times and different places. But that's the proper view of media. Mm-hmm. That's the proper view of media since the beginning that we can recapture now is the idea that it is a conversation. The conversation that you and I are having right now mm-hmm. is a model For what we all want to do with these wonderful new tools and yes, we're using a stage and spotlights and a camera And Mm -hmm. I'm in the position of privilege and I'm talking and not listening to you (laughs) Because I have the stage Nonetheless, we have a pleasant conversation Mm -hmm. and that is what we want out of society
1: It seems that's what the cultural conversation has been forever. plato was talking to montaigne and to shakespeare and and then Later on, they're, they're all talking to each other because almost all of them have read each other. And, and I think that that's what the whole idea of writing in the first place was, in order to get your thoughts out to an audience who will really thoroughly appreciate it, and, and another audience who will appreciate it, and another audience who will be
2: slightly entertained by it. But who also and will challenge all, you and, yeah. and, and bring their experience to it and enter into a dialogue and public discourse. Because, yeah, I mean,
1: I think that's why I mentioned Plato first was because... He wrote in a way saying, "Okay, here's a whole bunch of different points of view. You know, convince me. Give me an argument. You know, I'm I'm interested in trying to be wiser, and and a conversation with other people is how I'm going to get there." Yeah, yeah. Just like tonight. Thank you. John. Thank you very much. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in our 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hope to see you in person sometime at another event. Good night. Thanks, Jeff.